Right, well, good morning or good afternoon, everybody. Great to see you all. And a special welcome to my dad, who I'm so pleased to see him back. And Cal, good to see you back. So, let's start with a, with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you because we love you and because we seek your face. And we do pray that you will bless our, our service, you'll bless our time together. And above all things, please send the Lord Jesus soon and may we all be saved. May we all live forever and ever with you, with the Lord Jesus and with each other in your wonderful kingdom. So please go with us, Father, and be with each of us and all the stuff that we have in our lives. We pray, Father, that uh, you will bless the trip that Evie and I are going to go on to Germany this afternoon and help us to help those people in that uh, refugee camp and help, help us to get them baptised especially. Pray for each of us here with our individual issues that we have, our health and all the, all the private stuff that we all have. We pray that you will help us to keep the perspective of your son and his kingdom and his love and his death for us ever before us for his sake. Amen. Amen. Right, well, I want to just talk about one incident from Luke um, in the Gospels. And really, the Gospels are all about meetings that Jesus had with people. Various kinds of people. People in all sorts of different circumstances. Rich people, poor people, and so forth. And really, that is what life is about for all of us. It's about a meeting with the Lord Jesus. And so, with all these meetings that he has, you can see something of yourself. So... There came a man, verse 41, called Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the synagogue system was all dead nuts against Jesus. They didn't accept him as the Messiah, but this guy is a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come into his house. He had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as Jesus went, the crowds crushed him. So, this man obviously believed in Jesus to some degree because he openly comes out and says, please come to my house. To invite someone into your house meant that you sort of accepted them, really. And he knew that Jesus had to come into the house to do the healing. But he kind of contrasts with the guy that we just read about, the Gentile centurion in chapter 7, who says the same? I've got a servant who's sick. Please will you come to my house and heal my servant? But then as Jesus is coming, the guy rethinks and he sends a messenger to Jesus and he says, no, I'm not worthy. You should come under the roof of my house. Just say the word and I believe my servant will be healed. Jesus says, well, sure. I've never found so great faith not in Israel. So this guy, Jairus, comes over as not as strong in faith as the Roman centurion who after all, was uh, in charge of a load of soldiers, who were the uh, oppressors, the occupiers of Israel. So again, you see how it is that a, if you like, a minister of religion has got less faith than a Roman army officer who probably done a lot of very questionable things in his time and was in Palestine for not very good reasons. So that's always how it is that faith always surprises you that some church leader or pastor or, or whatever has actually got less faith than, I don't know, the hell's angel in his, uh, on his motorbike. Uh, I don't know. You know. This is how it is. Well, 
In John it says, among the chief rulers, many believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees they didn't confess him, lest they should be cast out of the synagogue. So a lot of them believed, but they didn't come out with their faith, these leaders of the synagogue. They believed, some of them, but they didn't come out with their faith. But this man is forced to come out with his faith because he's in a desperate situation. My daughter is dying. I need your help. So I will publicly come out. The Lord says that we are a city that is set on a hill. And a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And he also says that we are the light of the world. And you don't light a candle and put it under a bucket. So we have been lit. And one of the reasons we have come to know the Lord Jesus is so that we might give that light to other people. And yet we're all shy. I don't want you to know. You know, I just want to have this private little friendship with Jesus. And yet he wants us to come out. And he will arrange and structure our lives so you have to stand up. And it's the same with this guy who's one of these rulers of the synagogue who did believe on Jesus but was frightened to confess him. Well, Jesus wants you to not only believe but to openly confess him amongst men. And as he says, if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you at the last day. But if you do confess me before men, I will confess you. So it's, it's actually quite an important thing to be open about our faith. And if we are not, I think God will arrange situations so that we end up like that. Right, so the crowds are crushing Jesus as he's following this guy to his house. They're in Capernaum. You can go to Capernaum, as it's called, in uh, Galilee today, in Israel. It was never a big place. It's what we call a village. It's not a big place at all. Well, as he's on the way, a woman who had suffered from chronic bleeding for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood, all her money on doctors, and could not be healed by any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And in Mark's record, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all parallel records, uh, he says that she said to herself, if I may only touch the border of his garment, I shall be healed. And she kept saying this to herself. That's why she did <coughs> So, I want to focus a bit more on this woman with chronic bleeding. In some of the modern versions, it says menstrual bleeding. So, there is a disease whereby a woman can, as it were, be constantly menstruating, constantly bleeding. Now these days that can be controlled, but of course in those days it couldn't be. So this woman had been menstruating for 12 years. So chronic loss of blood, okay, and that would have left her anemic. She would have had brittle bones, her skin would have been very hard, and she would have had chronic energy loss. She would not have been an energetic person. Add to that the problem that these people were Jews and they were living under the law of Moses. While a woman was menstruating, she was unclean. And when she finished menstruating, she was unclean for another seven days after that. And whatever she touched became unclean. 
So, if you are menstruating all of the time, you are out of society. You are unclean. And you are making other people unclean. She also, I mean, I, you can assume that she therefore was not married. And even if she was, because the system is continually flushing her system through, because she's menstruating all the time, she would have had no chance to get pregnant. Right? So she's a childless woman. You can assume for sure that she's not married. Her family would not have wanted her because she's unclean. So she's in a pretty horrible situation. A pretty horrible situation. But just as nobody knows publicly whether a woman is menstruating or not, um, she could have disguised that to some degree. Nobody actually knew, maybe, the full extent of her problem. But it would have made her very well alone. Nobody quite understands my problem. And she would have realized that, well, I can't go to the temple, I'm unclean. I can't this, I can't that, I'm unclean. I'm unclean all the time. And so she was out of society, out of a family, out of religion. And yet she hears about Jesus. And she kept on, Mark says, she kept on saying to herself, if only I can touch the border of his garment, I shall be healed. I shall be made whole. And in those days, of course, they, they wore robes. They didn't wear Levi's jeans and all that sort of thing. They wore robes. And according to the Lord Moses, you were supposed to put a ribbon of blue around the bottom of your, of your garment to remind you of God, basically. Blue might be representing the sky. And there's a prophecy about Jesus in Malachi that says the soul of righteousness will arise with healing, some of the Bible say, in his wings. But the idea is the bottom of his garments. They were called the wings of the person. And so I think this woman would have heard that, that the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings at the bottom of his garments. And she thought, if only I can touch his righteousness, I don't have any of my own, I'm unclean, I shall be made clean, I shall be made pure, I shall be healed. And it's interesting that she figured that I, I can't make him unclean, but he can make me clean. Under the law of Moses, oh, if the unclean touched the clean, the clean became unclean. But she knew that that wasn't the case of Jesus. And so, she believes this, all on her own. And, as I say, as I said at the start, all these people with whom Jesus interacts are, if you like, every one of us. Because we have all got this sense that I am alone with my own dysfunction, my own uncleanness. No one else quite gets it, but he does. And that's the point. Now, 
she had spent, verse 23, all her livelihood, all her money on doubles. All her money. Well, as I said before, a woman in the first century owned nothing, basically. She didn't own her own body, she didn't own her own kids, didn't own her clothes. <coughs> Everything belonged to her husband, or to the man, the male in her family, her father, her older brother. But she had her own money. But she had spent that. So again, that's a little hint. She'd spent all of her money. It's a little hint that she was an independent, living independently of family and society. She was totally out. And so she's got this little secret. And I don't know how to quite compare it. It could be that someone is a secret alcoholic or a secret drug addict. And they are living an apparently normal life but in the evenings, they're drunk. And nobody quite knows that, but it stops them having any close relationship with anybody. Let's take a woman who's an alcoholic, let's say she's drunk in the evenings. She doesn't appear to be that type in the daytime, but she thinks, I can never get involved with a bloke because he's going to know, I can't stop it, he's going to know that I'm like this. Or it could be that some intimate problem in your health, deformity, and you think, yeah, well, I could get involved in a relationship, but sooner or later it's going to come out that I'm like I am. And there's a lot of people like that in this world. And in fact, we are all like that, to some degree or another. And you see how religion couldn't help her. She was out of religion. Uh, but she feels strongly attracted to Jesus. And she kept telling herself, if only I can connect with his righteousness, then I can be saved. How do we connect with his righteousness? We believe and we are baptized. You go under the water like his death. You come out of the water like resurrection with him. That's how you cling on to his righteousness. That's how you make the connection. Well, she had been bleeding for 12 years. Verse 42, Jairus has got a daughter of 12 years old. That cannot be accidental. Jesus is rushing to cure the 12-year-old daughter, and a woman who's had this menstrual problem for 12 years grabs hold of her. Now, what's the connection between the... 12 years. I would say this, that God is working in parallel in people's lives. This young girl who was dying at 12 years old, she may have been ill from when she was born, probably she was. So God had been working in her life, in this kid's life, for 12 years. And he'd been working in the life of this woman who had had a menstrual problem for 12 years, and was chronic bleeding for 12 years. And then, on the same day, they get healed by Jesus. Now, the basis of Christian fellowship, I would say, is experience. That it is experience that unites. Somebody, some smart Alex said, doctrine divides, but experience unites. That's how it is. 
we all think no one would understand what I've been through. No one would understand me. Even if I sit and talk to you all day and all night, you wouldn't get me. But as you talk to other people who are believers, you find, wow, I never thought that. I met this man, I met this woman at church who actually have been through the same as me. Wow. And I thought I was the only one. Oh, why do you have that? Oh, wow, you've been through the same as me. Oh, I never thought that was possible. It's because there is this same divine hand, this big hand of God, that is working in parallel lives. In your life, in his life, in my life. And when we connect with each other, we stop talking about weather, stop talking about state the nation, and all the other things that British people rather like to talk about, and we actually get talking about real stuff, about real spiritual stuff, then you find, wow, I am not totally alone. Oh wow, actually what I thought was just me, someone else has been through. And you think, oh, that's too weird. That is too weird. But it's not weird, it's because the same hand of God was working in our lives. And it is that which binds you together. It is that experience that unites. And don't forget, these people are living in Capernaum, which is not a big place. It's not like they're living in London or somewhere. They're living in a village. And uh, they would have all known each other. And, uh, yeah, as they went on after this, after this day, I'm sure that young girl, the 12-year-old, and this woman who had 12 years of this terrible affliction, they would have connected with each other, of course. So, she comes behind him, verse 44, so no one can see. And although we're reading text, it's like there's a cameraman. It's like there's a video camera on Jesus. This is where the Bible becomes a living word. And you, as it were, see it happening. She comes behind. There's all these people thronging Jesus and crushing him. And she comes behind, where no one can see him, touch the border of his garment. And immediately her bleeding stopped. I'll say, in Mark's Gospel, he says, she kept saying to herself, if only I can touch the border of his garment, I shall be healed. She kept saying that to herself, and she did it. And the Bible has a huge interest in self-talk. So often in the Bible you read... He said this to himself, or he thought in his heart. And she kept saying this to herself. And that's a thing. That is the, that's the sign, really, of whether you are born again, whether you've got the spirit, I would say, is what's going on in your head? What's going on in your spirit? What's your self-talk? What's your self-talk as you're sitting on a bus, as you're lying awake in bed, trying to go to sleep or whatever? It's your self-talk that is so important. And this led her to touch the border of his garment. And Jesus said, who touched me? And when all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the crowds are pressing upon you and crushing you. Oh, that would be stupid, who touched me? Well, about, you know, about a thousand people, Lord. And you see again how the disciples themselves, who are the ones writing these Gospels, I said, what, what a load of dumbos we were. We said to him, oh, come on, don't be silly, Jesus. You know, you say, who touched me? 
come on, there's thousands of people who have touched you in the last half an hour. They're thronging you. <coughs> and one little word there, when all denied, Jesus says to the crowd, oh, push, push, push your money. Who touched me? Well, okay, everyone touched him. Who touched me? Everyone said, oh, not me. Is it you? No, not me. Not me. They all denied. That includes the woman. She'd come behind him, touched the ball of his garment. Oh, wow, I'm cured. And then Jesus said, who touched me? And they all said, all of them denied it. She said, not me. No, not me. In other words, she wanted a very quiet, secret relationship with Jesus. Did, did you touch him? Me? Oh, no, not me. So, Jesus said, but someone did touch me, for I perceived power going out from me. So he's saying, yeah, you all physically touched me, but there was one of you who really connected with me. It's a bit like all these people who say, I'm a Christian, and you think, well, really? I look like it, but anyway, um, maybe not for me to judge, but out of all those people, Jesus knows who are really connecting with him. So, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, there's Jesus looking around, who touched her? Well, a thousand of people touched her. Jesus? No, oh, but someone touched me. Is it you? No, not me. She denied, no, no, not, not me. She saw that she was not hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared the whole truth in the presence of all the people for what reason she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. Well, you see, like I said with Jairus, how Jesus engineered things, structured things, so that people had to come out. We hear a lot about coming out, don't we? But this is coming out for Jesus. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. You know the old hymn, the old Sallyan hymn. That's it. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. God bless the salvation army. You soldiers of the cross. Absolutely. Stand up. And who wants to stand up for Jesus? Well, well we're all a bit shy. I want to stand up for Jesus. You know, we're all uh, worried about our image and all the rest of it. Good to see you, gents. There's a couple of spare seats down here. Um, and so he structures things so that we have to. And so the woman was not hidden. And she realised that and she declares the whole truth. Wow, what was the whole truth? In the presence of all the people, she told them for what reason she touched him. So everyone would have gone quiet. Oh, you touched him. Well, we all did, didn't we? Ah, but you did. You just denied you did. So she would have told them the whole miserable story of what it was like for 12 years to have constant menstruation, to have this blood problem, that bleeding problem that had left her unclean. Whatever she touched became unclean. And everyone was made unclean by touching her. And as she told the story, these are Jews, don't forget, the crowds would have been, oh, you made me unclean. We've all been pushing on Jesus and pushing on you as well. And you're menstruating. Wow, you're unclean. It's a really big thing with um, Orthodox Jewish people to this day. I remember, oh, I don't think Cindy and I even know, but we went to Israel 
We're coming back on this LL flight. And um, there was this Jewish bloke. He was massive. He was so obese. Right? And there were three seats on the aeroplane. And this bloke, he was so huge. He was like spilling out <laughs> onto Cindy's seat. And he was like all over. And I didn't know what to do. I told him, do you mind sort of not splurging all over my girlfriend sort of thing? And eventually I said to him, you know what, mate? She's menstruating. <laughs> She's menstruating? Oh, and a guy was like going crazy. Call the stewardess. Move me to another seat. I can't sit next to a woman who's menstruating. So I've got, I've got my way. But um, what, what I'm saying is that this, uh, this uh, woman, when she goes, she tells everyone the truth, the whole crowd. Well, I've been menstruating for 12 years. Oh, oh, oh. oh but I'm like, it's okay now. That's why she says, verse 47, I've been immediately healed. <laughs> Don't worry, guys, I'm not doing it anymore. Of course, she was still, the Lord knows that she was still infectious for seven days. But anyway, so she told a whole miserable story. Now, I think that because Capernaum was a small place, I reckon she would have disguised herself because probably, because the constant menstruation, the 12 years, the constant loss of blood, the constant loss of iron, anemic, etc., she would have probably been unable to work, she was known to be unclean, she was outside of her family, and so she probably was known as a beggar. And probably the only person who gave her any help was Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, because that's what the synagogues did in those days. They didn't have NHS, they didn't have, you know, handouts from the government. The synagogue looked after you, just like in this country in the old days, the church kind of looked after you if you fell on bad times. And so it would have been. The synagogue looked after people like that, gave them you know, a bit of food, clothes, so forth. So you see how the whole thing comes together. Jairus, the big guy, the ruler of the synagogue, has come to Jesus, desperate, please come and heal my daughter. And Jesus and Jairus are rushing, and they're the massive crowd pressing on them. And this woman then interrupts and touches the Lord's garment, gets healed. And I think when it says she told them the truth, and told them for what reason she touched him, I think she would have had to take off the disguise. I'm sure she would have been disguised. People would have thought, ah, she's unclean, that woman. Ah, she's in the middle of a crowd. Oh, no. Yeah. So, Jesus will work in your life as he did in the life of Jairus. So that stand up, stand up for Jesus. That you've got to come out. And Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Well, there's a lot behind that going peace. This poor woman had had this awful life. I've, Twelve years, I've been unclean. Whatever I touch, I'd make unclean. People don't want me. They don't want me around them. No decent person wants me around them. I'm not allowed to go into the synagogue. I'm not allowed to go into the temple because I'm constantly menstruating. I, I'm just a source of uncleanness. She would have been, quite apart from all her physical problems, the poor woman would have been terribly depressed. Big time. Anxious. As I say, you can't tell if someone's menstruating or not. So she would have made out, I'm not menstruating, I'm fine. <coughs> and she knew she was. And it would have been a most miserable experience. As I say, it's like the secret alcoholic. Drunk every night, but I will pretend, or she, the person will pretend, 
I'm not. They are. Go in peace. It's all okay. It's dealt with. And this is the, you know, one of why you get these accounts in the Gospels of the meetings of Jesus and people. Because, in essence, this woman is half a Croydon. Well, all a Croydon, probably. Um, you know, well, I'm saying. <clears throat> and why does he call her daughter? <clears throat> well, I mean, she wasn't Jesus' daughter. I think to connect her with the other daughter. Jairus has come to Jesus and said, my daughter, who is 12 years old, is about to die. Please come and save her. And on his way there, this woman, who has been suffering 12 years, same age as the daughter, um, has been cured. And Jesus calls her daughter. I think, again, to cement the two together. 12-year period, um, and he calls them both daughter. And so, <clears throat> as I said, I, I think that probably Jairus knew this woman anyway. He probably gave her a bit of food, a bit of, bit of bread, a bit of a uh, few clothes and stuff like that now and again. It's all to do with the formation of a new family identity. She had no family. As I said, constant menstruation for 12 years, she would have been unable to get pregnant. In any case, she was constantly unclean. She would almost certainly not have had a husband. When it says that she spent all her money on doctors, only a single woman had her money. Because a married woman didn't have any money of her own. It was all belonged to the husband or older brother or father or some other male. So he's giving her a new family. She goes in peace, into peace, as the Lord's spiritual daughter. It's a new family. And he says, your faith has made you whole. And I think you can put the stress on the word faith. She had the idea that if I physically touch this garment of Jesus, I shall be cured. And okay, he did it, but he says, you know what, my garment is just a piece of cloth, like anything else. Um, there's no power in it. It was your faith. For example, there is in Russian Orthodoxy the idea of kasanya, um, touching it means, where you will travel a huge distance from one side of Russia to the other, and in, in Poland I think they do it as well, with the Black Madonna in Chestahova. Um, and you come to the shrine, the icon, I touched it. I did it. I'm blessed, I touched it. <coughs> well, I'm not a fan of that. But she had the same mentality. If I can touch this, I should be cured. She touches it, and Jesus says, okay, well, I did heal you because of it, but, you know, it wasn't touching. It was your faith. Not your touch. Not the physical bit of garment that you touched. It's meaningless. It was your faith that made you whole. So you see how tolerant Jesus was. Okay, you got that bit wrong. That's okay. But you see how it was. First of all, when she touched him, his garment, she got cured, and Jesus says, who did it? And they all denied. She denied. Me? No, not me. I denied. I denied. I know I don't touch him. And then she realizes she can't be hid and she comes out. She confesses. Jesus doesn't want us to just flirt with him. Like that's what she wanted to do. To flirt with him from a distance. That I'll just secretly have this little bit of faith in you. Secretly make this little connection with you. He doesn't want us to flirt with him. He wants us to come out. 
He wants us to stand up and say, yeah, this is my man. And he'll say, yeah, this is my woman. That's what he wants. Not secret, not flirting from a distance of affair of the mind, but he actually wants the real thing with us. And our temptation is to flirt from a distance. I like this idea of Jesus. Yes, I will come close, I will touch, I will do my thing. Uh, but he wants us to stand up and say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is my man. And he'll say, yeah, that's my woman. That's how he wants it to be. So, <clears throat> while he had spoke, there came one from the house of the ruler of the synagogue, saying, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the master. Uh, the only people who ever called Jesus the master are his disciples. The only people who call Jesus the Master are his disciples. And I wonder if this person who comes running up to them and says, ah, don't bother the girls. <coughs> I wonder if that was a disciple. He said, ah, oh, Jesus can't do it right now. The girl's dead. Jesus, hearing it, responded, fear not. Only believe, and she shall be made whole. Jonas, the father of the girl, must have thought, ah, this is too cruel. This is just cruel. Though there I was, if only Jesus had come with me, and then we could have healed my daughter, but this stupid woman comes up and makes all this fuss, and then he got delayed, and that's why my girl couldn't get healed, so she died, all because of this stupid woman. But as we know from the story, it ends up with Jesus resurrecting the girl anyway. So the miracle becomes greater. And so there is this apparent delay there's this verse in Isaiah that says he delays so that he might be exalted the more. And that's it. You know, we want immediate. You know, this is our old thing, the screen life. I want to tap things on my screen and get it straight away. And if you delay for 10 seconds or a minute, oh, no, that's unbearable. And so it is. People expect this from God. Like God is an ATM where you punch in the magic code and banknotes flood out. Oh, does it work? Oh, I don't think much of that. No, it, it, God's more subtle than that. There is this delay. It's not all immediate. No. There is the apparent silence of God. There is the apparent delay of God. But it's all in this bigger picture to make it all the more glorious in the end. And as God said to Israel in the desert, I wish to do you good at your latter end. That is his intention. Not to be playing hard to get, not to be mucking around, dilly-dallying for the sake of it. No, he's not like that. So he says, fear not, only believe. Now you see that fear and faith, belief, are the opposite. Fear not, only believe. So are Absolutely the opposite. And it's this life of fear that is not the life of faith. This life of continual anxiety, fearing that this might happen and that could happen and this might be the case. Well, well, it might be. Possibly so. But the life of faith is not the life of endless fear and anxiety. Fear not, only believe and she shall be made whole. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to, I guess, Jairus. The girl's dead. So he seems to be saying to the Father, if you believe, she can be resurrected. 
Because the girl was dead. So it's not as if Jesus is saying, well, if the girl believes she can get resurrected, she's dead. Game over. So you see here how faith can, in some cases, affect the salvation of a third party. He says to Jairus, if you believe, she can be saved. You see it when those guys rip up the flat roof over where Jesus was and they let down this paralyzed bloke. And Jesus saw these guys doing that. And it says, when he saw the faith of the friends, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, you might think you're going to get forgiven of sins if you yourself repent, which is, I suppose, true, generally. But in that case, he says, when he saw the faith of the friends who had ripped up the flat roof and let this bloke down, he saw their faith, these four guys, he says to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. So, I'm not saying that if we just look at some random guy walking past outside the pub window and say, let's pray for that guy that he's going to be saved. I don't think it's quite like that. I think it's a case rather of there may be people who are, let's say, within, well, I was putting it very crudely, but are within 80 or 90% of salvation. But they ain't quite made the whole journey. They made the whole distance. And we can, as the Old Testament says, we can stand in the gap. There's a gap there. They haven't quite made it. That's where we come in. It's not the same as, you know, oh, I can just ask God to save that random guy who might be an atheist or he doesn't even want to want to know. He doesn't want to live forever. Okay, so he doesn't want to live forever. But it may be that for you or for me. Yeah, we do believe and we do want to be saved, but unfortunately we're not totally there because of this, that, or the other. It is that percentage, if you like, a very crude way to put it, but it is that gap that we can fill. And I think that's the case of this girl. He says, look, if you believe this can happen, I can raise the girl. When he came to the house, he didn't permit anyone to enter with him except Peter, John and James, and the father and mother of the girl. All were weeping and bewailing her, but he said, weep not, for she is not dead, but sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing she was dead. Well, in those days, you employed professional mourners, weepers, to come and mourn. That's why one minute they're, they're mourning, the next minute they're laughing at him. That would make sense. That these people were paid, were the paid mourners. The girl had died of, let's pay a bunch of women to come and, come and cry. And that's what they did. They still do it in the Middle East. And that's why they, they switch quickly from weeping, to uh, laughing in the school. Interestingly, when he says to um, everyone, look, stop crying, weep not. It's the very same phrase that he uses after the resurrection to Mary Magdalene when she's weeping at the grave, at the, where he was buried, in the tomb, and he says, weep not. My point is that before his uh, crucifixion and resurrection and glorification, he uses one phrase, we not. Afterwards, he uses the same phrase. Paul says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
that there is something in him that is common. The Jesus who loved little children. The Jesus who loved and noticed people like this hemorrhaging, menstruating woman. Is the same Jesus we deal with today. And it is that Jesus who we shall meet at the day of judgment. It's not that the Jesus we meet in the future will turn another face. Oh, I thought you loved little children. And I thought you loved sinful people. And I thought you, you know, loved to save people. Oh, whoops, now you're this judgmental, aggressive sort of person. No. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just notice that. that. He uses the same sort of language before his death and after his resurrection and glorification. Then after the scorn, I think you see there his humanity. A bunch of people laughing at you. What does it mean? He blushed? We might be awkward, everyone's laughing at me. See a little picture of his humanity. But he, taking her by the hand, called Talitha Kumi, which is my lamb, I say to you, arise. So he resurrects this lamb. He was to die as the lamb of God and be resurrected. So he sees this 12-year-old kid. He sees himself. And that's how you find in your own life as you try to help other people, you get comfort for yourself. You'd have thought, I've just resurrected this little lamb. I'm also the lamb who's going to die. But I shall be resurrected. <clears throat> As Philip returned, she rose up immediately, and he commanded that something be given her to eat. There they were. Mum and Dad jumping around. Oh, it's great to see you. It's wonderful you're alive. Oh, wonderful. We're so happy to see you. Lots of hugs and kisses. And Jesus always so sensitive, always so sensitive to human needs, says, guys, she's been dead, so she's very hungry. Give her a meal. And I just love that, that he is so sensitive, the Jesus of yesterday is the Jesus of today, and the Jesus with whom we have to be forever and ever. I just love that, you know. She's hungry, guys. Give us a to eat. The parents were amazed, but he ordered them to tell no one what had been done. That's a bit weird. Because everybody knew. There was all these women mourning and wailing. And he goes, oh, my know, she's sleeping. And then he resurrects her, and then mum and dad and the, and the little girl come out to everybody. Hi, everybody. Huh? Everybody knew she'd been resurrected by Jesus. So why does he tell them, don't tell anybody? I think what he meant was, don't go sort of bragging about it, don't go in a sort of true, primitive sort of way, blasting it all around the place. Meditate about this and think about it deeply inside you. I think that's what he meant. And so it is with us that he wants personal relationship with us. And there are things that happen in your life that are clearly of the Lord that you don't have to go and tell everybody else about. When I say to you when we start our meetings, has anyone got anything they'd like to share what happened this week? I believe every one of you does have. But this is the sort of things you don't stand up in front of the pub and tell everyone about. That's fine. That's fine. 
in any good relationship, there are those private things between the two of you that you don't go and tell everybody else about. That's not good. That's all right. And in a legitimate, real relationship with the Lord Jesus, it's the same. And he wanted it the same with his family. Don't go mouthing it all around. Just, uh, just keep it in your mind, in your heart. And that's how it is with you and me. It's not all about bragging or blowing off about this, that and the other. It's those secret things that are the wealth of your relationship with Jesus. Just as in any good relationship, you have your moments which are intimate between the two of you. You don't go and tell everybody else by the very nature of the whole thing. And as life goes on, you get more and more of those moments. And that is what gives you a wealthy relationship. And it's the same in the relationship of the Lord Jesus. There are these things that are between him and us, and you. And you keep that to yourself, quite rightly. And as time goes on, you get more and more of those things. And that is what cements you in that relationship. So, it is all about him, the Lamb of God who died and rose again. So, we're going to take the bread and the juice. Right, let's give thanks then. Let's give thanks for the bread. I wonder, um, Kevin, could you give thanks for the bread? Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to thank you to partake of the communion. Please bless the bread and partake in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the symbol of his body. Right, let's give thanks for the cup. It's a symbol of his blood. Could you uh, give thanks for the cup? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the privilege of all of you that you started upon us to share in life. Sanctifies us and justifies us and saves us and forgives us. We do this in the name of Jesus that we took. Let's just give thanks for the food. Um, it's coming, is it not? Let's give thanks for the food. Um, Sean, could you give us a prayer for, for the food? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and the food that is brought before us today in your holy church. Bless the week that we have ahead of us, Lord. Everything we do, we do in your name. Let you be our vocabulary in every sentence of everything we do, Lord. Because you are the Almighty Father. You are the greatest Lord. You are our Heavenly Father. We look to you, Lord. And all of God's good people today in your holy house say Amen. 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 Let him be our vocabulary. I like that, Sean.